You are now listening to the February 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and divine intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Heart and Soul listeners, this is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today we're going to share the story of Amaziah, the ninth king of Judah. His records are found in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 to 22, and 2 Chronicles chapter 25. Amaziah was the son of Joash, the eighth king of Judah. He became the king of Judah in the second year of Jehoash, the king of Israel. Amaziah reigned over Judah for 29 years. The Bible tells us that he did right in the sight of God. However, the Bible also assesses him as a king who did not follow God wholeheartedly, as King David did during his days. According to 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 3-4, to although Amaziah did right in the sight of God, he did not remove the high places and allow the people of Judah to worship and give sacrifices to idols. Before we go on, let's briefly recollect Amaziah's father Joash, whose story we shared three weeks ago. Joash became king when he was seven years old and repaired the house of God under the guidance of high priest Jehoiada. He did right in the sight of God. However, after the death of Jehoiada, he began slipping away from God and started worshiping idols. Therefore, God raised the Arameans and rendered his judgment against Joash and Judah. After he was wounded in a war, Joash was subsequently murdered in the hands of his own servants. Amaziah remembered how his father Joash died. Once he became king, Amaziah searched those servants who murdered his father and executed them. But there is something we should take notice it is the fact that he killed those that were directly responsible for his father's death but spared their children, abiding by the instructions from the Scripture. Here is what is said in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 3-4. to Now it came about, as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, that he killed his servants who had slain his father the king. However, he did not put their children to death but did as it is written in the law in the book of Moses, which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for sons, nor sons be put to death for fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. The Bible tells us that Amaziah acted according to God's command, just as recorded in Moses' book of law. Amaziah knew the law that said children shall not be put to death for their father's sins. He obeyed God's command by following God's law. Sometime later, Amaziah began preparing for war against Edom. The Edomites had been attacking the southern border of Judah over several hundred years, and Amaziah was determined to embark on a war to settle the issue. But when he gathered his soldiers and counted them, he found them less than 300,000 soldiers, and that fell woefully short of the size of the troop he needed to go against Edom. So Amaziah hired 100,000 soldiers from Israel and paid 100 talents of silver, which would be equivalent to over $40 million in today's currency, a huge sum. Though he had to expense a great sum of money, Amaziah was committed to going to war against the Edomites and to make sure he would win. But then a man of God came to see Amaziah and warned him against engaging in a war with the soldiers from Israel, the sons of Ephraim. This was because, at the time, Ephraim was the center of idol worshiping. It was apparent that God did not approve of going to war 
allied with the people of Israel who worshipped idols and did evil. The man of God let Amaziah know that he would lose the war if Judah and the soldiers of Israel went to war together. Amaziah quickly realized what the warning was about. However, he hesitated and contemplated about the large payment he contracted to the soldiers of Israel. If he followed God's instructions, that large sum of money would go to waste. When the man of God saw Amaziah mulling over what to do, he reminded Amaziah that God is able to give Amaziah much more than the hundred talents of silver. The man of God advised Amaziah to trust in the Lord, whose thoughts are unfathomable and who could lead Amaziah to victory even without the hundred thousand soldiers of Israel. Amaziah had known God and followed God's laws. Nonetheless, in his zeal to go to war against the Edomites, he made a mistake of relying on his own thoughts. In preparation for the war against Edom, he decided to hire a hundred thousand soldiers of Israel at the price of a hundred talents of silver rather than seeking God and waiting for his guidance. Ultimately, he laid down his own thoughts after listening to the man of God. Obeying God's instructions, he sent those soldiers from Israel back to their homes. Though Amaziah lost the hefty hundred talents of silver, he trusted the word of God. Amaziah trusted God's word and was able to muster the courage, though the number of soldiers of Judah was only 300,000, Amaziah trusted God and God helped Amaziah. Once the battle began, Amaziah struck down 10,000 of the descendants of Seir in the Valley of Salt, where David had struck down 18,000 and placed all Edomites in servitude as his slaves. Seir is another name for Edom, and Amaziah was victorious against the Edomites with the help from God, just as it happened for David. Amaziah did not stop at killing 10,000 Edomites. He captured another 10,000 and brought them to the top of the cliff and executed them by throwing them down from the top of the cliff. Further, Amaziah moved on with his troops and seized Selah, the capital of Edom. He then changed its name to Jokthiel. Back then, changing the name of a town conquered meant that it was now under the rule of the new authority. The name Jokthiel meant praising God. Amaziah chose this name to acknowledge that the land now under his authority came about not by his own might, but by the might of God. With this new name for the old capital of Edom, he meant to praise the mighty God. Meanwhile, what do you think happened with those hundred thousand soldiers that Amaziah dismissed in obedience to God's instructions? Although they earned a great sum of a hundred talents of silver without doing anything, 2 Chronicles chapter 25 verse 10 tells us that their anger burned with fierce anger against Judah. Maybe they felt slighted. Regardless of the exact reason, the Bible tells us that they were furious. They were brought in to help Judah fight a war, but then they were turned away. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13 records that in their anger, they raided the cities of Judah on their way back to Israel. They plundered much spoil and struck down 3,000 people. This became the cause of the war between Judah and Israel sometime later. Amaziah withdrew his own thoughts before the war against Edom. By humbling himself in such a way, he experienced victory that came from God. Thus far, he trusted God and acted in earnestness. But what do you think happens afterwards? Stay tuned for the second half of the story of King Amaziah. See you next time. Until then, Shalom.
Not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is How I Define Wisdom. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. If you'll open your Bible to the book of what? James, that's right. Chapter 3 is where we are right now. James chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the second half. of. We're going to start at verse 13. In the second part of the third chapter of James, he's talking about two types of wisdom. There are two definitions of wisdom in the world at the time of James. 
One type of wisdom was the Greco-Roman uh, idea of wisdom. It was basically just kind of this philosophy out there. I mean, no real definition of it. And then there was the Hebrew definition of wisdom, which was much more concrete. It was based in morality, based in the knowledge of the one true living God. And Hebrew wisdom was not just knowing information. Hebrew wisdom would be defined as knowing it and, anybody guess, doing it, right? Knowing it and doing it. That's what true wisdom is. Wisdom informs our decisions. Frank W. Borum once said, we make our decisions and then our decisions turn around and make us. We make our decisions and then our decisions turn around and make us. Look at verse 13 here in chapter three. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It's like James is going this direction. Remember how James was saying, you talk about your faith, I talk about my works. Faith without works is dead, right? So he's saying, hey, we're saved by faith, but show me your saving faith by doing something about it. Now he's saying, show me you have, quote unquote, wisdom by doing a wise thing. Show me your good wisdom in action. That's where James is coming from. Wisdom is the practical and right application of the truth of the Bible. Jesus said, everyone who hears my word and does them or acts upon them is like a person who built their house on a rock. It's hearing the word of God and what? Doing it. Everybody who hears my word and does it, that's wisdom. It's like a person who builds their lives on a solid rock. Well, hey, let's look at what James defines, first of all, as the characteristics of worldly wisdom. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't say, oh, I've got wisdom if these things are in your life. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from heaven rather is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It could be translated demonical. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Yuck. <laughs> the wisdom that is worldly, that's, that's what it looks like. Characterized, first of all, he says, by bitter jealousies. Just kind of follow along there. Wisdom from above, he says, is, has bitter jealousy. That's characteristic of it. The word bitter there means to cut. He's saying bitter people are like razor blades. Bitter people hurt people, right? You may have been hurt by a bitter person. Then he says another characteristic of worldly wisdom is selfish ambition, strife. Now he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians in these new churches that formed soon after Jesus ascended into heaven. They were having problem with what he calls selfish ambition. That means strife. It means division. But worldly wisdom has selfish ambition, boasting. That's not wise, right? He goes on falsehood. True wisdom doesn't lie. Earthly thinking, a little difficult to translate into English. Uh, probably we could just say, we could just say, that's how unsafe people think. They're not informed by God's word, earthly thinking. A lack of true spirituality, he says, they are unspiritual. You see that? Unspiritual. And then the end of verse 15, he says, another symptom and characteristic of worldly wisdom is that it is under Satan's influence. It is Satan's influence. The word really is demonical. It's demonical. Sounds like a made up word, huh? It's true that Christians can operate in Satan's quote unquote wisdom. When our hearts are filled with bitterness and jealousy and selfish ambition, 
Someone has said, listen, our judgment is impaired. True. We can't be relied on. We can't be objective. And our motives color our decisions. That's true. Then in verse 16, James just says it again. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Okay. I don't want to learn any more of the world's wisdom. You good? You guys okay with that? All right. So there you go. Now, what I want to know is the next part is, well, what about God's wisdom? Because this, what he's going to talk about next is the wisdom that we've prayed for. You go back to chapter one, look at chapter one, five. This is the wisdom that we ask for. Look at one verse five. If any of you lacks what? Wisdom, let he ask God who gives generously to all men without reproach and it will be given to him. So James talking about wisdom. Remember, there weren't chapters in what he's saying. This is his long letter. And now he talks about, well, here's the wisdom of God. Here's the characteristics of God's wisdom and they're mentioned here in verse 17. Let's just read 17. Hey, let's read it together. Okay, good and loud. But the wisdom from above is first what? Pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The wisdom from above. The, the Greek actually says the above wisdom. The wisdom from above. The from above wisdom. It says the, the from above wisdom is first of all pure. Now, it doesn't mean this is first on the list, though it is first on the list. This means that the wisdom from above is first. This means the most Important number one thing. The number one most important characteristic of God's wisdom is purity. The word carries the idea of no contamination. It's talking about spiritual and moral uh, integrity. Jesus' promise in his sermon was blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God, that's right. The pure in heart, that's wisdom. God's wisdom is first pure. Then he says, the next thing is, what does it say? First pure, then what? Peaceable, peaceable. This translated ready for peace, ready for peace. Wise people are always ready for peace. It's always wise to seek peace. In sharp contrast to the bitter jealousy and the selfish ambition that the unwise exhibit, God's wise person exhibits a readiness for peace. A fool, Proverbs tells us, stirs up strife. A wise person wants peace. Fools follow their own natural tendencies to be harsh, those who are wise seek to have peace. Peace with relationships, peace with others. I like what D. Edmund Hebert said, but even when fighting against sin, it hungers for peace, yearning to heal all divisions by its wise counsel. A pastor, you probably know his name, who pastor at that time of a really large church, well-known church, um, in Phoenix, Arizona, he, he was mentoring me, but it wasn't like sit down and mentoring. He mentored me by a conversation we were having. He says, yeah, we had this big deal in our church and it had a big potential to be explosive, so to speak. He says, but you know what I always like to do? I like to go in and try to defuse these situations. It's like the SWAT team, they want to get there before the explosion, right? They, they want to diffuse the, uh, the, 
the bomb before it goes off. Always a good idea. Wise people do that. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. If you're a peacemaker, God will call you his child. A person who's controlled by heavenly wisdom will not want to be the cause of conflict. He wouldn't want to perpetuate it either. God's wise peace causes wise relationships. Think about it. When we were saved, we were made at peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we're told. And so here we're justified and we have peace with God. That's the vertical relationship, peace vertically. Now God says, you have peace with me. Now I want you to have peace with people. That's your horizontal relationship. So somebody who's experienced peace with God is going to want to perpetuate peaceful relationships with other people, right? That's the way it's going to be. Pursuing peace or resolution is the way to go. Now, the third characteristic of God's wisdom and the wisdom that he says, hey, I'll give you if you ask for it, is to be gentle. The wisdom from above, he says next, uh, is first pure, then peaceable, and then he says gentle. Uh, this is probably the hardest word to translate in this whole list we're looking at. It really is. You cannot take one English word and say it means gentle. It really doesn't do service to what this word means. It, gentle could mean kind. It, it really could mean kind, kindness. Um, it means to be courteous, to be forbearing. I think, really, as I was thinking, how can I explain this? I thought the best way to explain this is by showing what it's not. Okay, then you guys can see what it is. But we gotta, here's what it is not. This is what this characteristic of wisdom to be gentle is not. Look at, hold your place. Look at Matthew chapter 18. So you go to the left, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Okay, here we go. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to sell accounts with his servants. So bills to... When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owned him 10,000 talents. The, the truth is, gang, he couldn't pay that off in many lifetimes. That's how big a debt this was. And since he could not pay debt, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment being made. And you got to understand that's still not even minutely covered the cost that he owed. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, say again, I'll pay you everything I like and how many lifetimes you're going to live. So I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that service released him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred denarii. That's like nothing, you guys. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in the prison until they should pay him back. When his fellow servants saw what had, had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Uh-oh, that's not in the Greek. Verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. What that bad guy did to his servant is the, is the very opposite 
of this attribute of wisdom that is translated being gentle or kind. Does that make it more clear? Seeing what it's not. And then we go on, look at verse 17 again, get back to James chapter uh, three. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, we've just seen gentle, and then the fourth characteristic of a wise person is that they are open to reason. Open to reason. This again, digging into it, I think it could be translated very well, teachable, and not stubborn. Teachable, not stubborn. Because this term is from two Greek words, one which means well, and the other means persuadable. Wisdom from above is well persuadable. Together, they really mean easily persuaded. Now, before you think, oh, you know, that's some pushover that will do whatever somebody says, or some naive person who can't make their own decisions, that, that's not what we're talking about at all when we say easily persuaded. It has the sense, Chuck Swindoll says, it has a sense of teachable, somebody who puts aside stubbornness and readily yields to the truth. It can refer to a person who is conciliatory, flexible, and open to change. When the Spirit of God captures the heart and does his work deep within, he softens us. Flexible, he says readily yields to the truth. You're really a wise person if you're willing to yield, to yield to wisdom, not to dig in your heels because you think you're right. You're open to persuasion. You're approachable. Some people are not approachable. If you suggest something, you know what response you're going to get. So you don't even go to them. You know, they're not even, they're not even approachable. But remember what James had to say in James 1.19. He said, let everyone be quick to what? Hear. Then slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear. One paraphrase reads, lead with your ears. I like that. Lead with your ears. Too many people are ready, fire, aim. That's not good. Many people think that stubbornness is conviction and they must have their own way. When God's wisdom is at work, there is a willingness to listen, think, pray, and obey whatever God reveals. Yielding to persuasion is another translation of this word. I'm gonna pause here and I want you to ask yourselves a couple of questions. This is your time. I want you to ask yourselves, these questions. First of all, ask yourself, do I genuinely listen to the opinions that are other than mine? Do you genuinely listen to opinions that aren't yours? Can I conceive that I may be wrong? <laughs> Can you even conceive that's possible, that you could be wrong? Ask yourself, do I consider the possibility that I may not have all the information and the judgment I have made is wrong? I don't have all the information, maybe. And maybe I shouldn't have been so quick like the guy I was working with. Am I able to be reasonable and change my opinion when I'm examining the facts? Can you be reasonable Change your opinion when you're examining the facts. And I would say, am I willing to yield to other people? God's wisdom is characterized next, we see, by being full of mercy. You see that? It's full of mercy. To be full means to be controlled by, controlled by mercy. We should give everybody grace, which means you're giving someone what they don't deserve, but we should also be merciful, which is not giving someone what they deserve. Again, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? 
mercy. That's good, yeah. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. After all these years, this is my point, of ministering to people, seeing so many different areas of life come up. When I first started out, everything was black and white, right, wrong. I mean, everything, black and white. I had all the answers. Now, you guys, I realize that there are a lot of gray areas. I'm not talking about moral issues. But maybe I'm talking about letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Things the, the Bible doesn't directly address. What do I do with those? You know what? When I stand before Christ, I want to have been a man who, if I made mistakes, it was on the side of mercy and not on the side of judgment. You know what I'm saying? I want to, if the Lord's going to rebuke me, he can say, you were too merciful. Too merciful. (laughs) I was filling out a um, job recommendation for somebody, and they wanted to know the person's you know, what the things might be their faults. And I was thinking, man, I I know this person. I have such high respect for them. I love being able to do this this, uh, job application, you know, kind of recommendation thing. I was trying to think, what could it be? What could it be? And I I finally ended up writing, they can be too merciful. (laughs) If that could be a fault, is what I said. They're just too merciful if that could be a fault. Well, I'd love for that to be on my, my job uh, recommendation. It's not, I'm sure. But be merciful because the Bible says with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged when you stand before Christ. So I wanted to be, oh, wow, Mark, you were merciful. You were uh, kind. So that's, that's, what, that's what this means. Then it says, uh, after full of mercy, it says, another characteristic of a righteous person is that their lives are full of good fruit. You see that? Full of good fruit. A wise person is going to be a blessing to other people. People gather around the tree with good fruit. Grandma and grandpa, they had three cherry trees. Those cherries on that tree, they were big cherries. We get cherries in the desert here, and they're like, you know, mm, aren't these good? You know, and they're, they're little and they're scrawny compared to what my parents had and my grands had in, in Southern Oregon. I mean, it was like, I'd help them pick. They said, okay, come help us pick the cherries. I put more in my mouth than in the pail. Okay, that's for sure. See, that tree was popular because the fruit was sweet. The fruit was good. Wise people is, are gonna be uh, loved and they're gonna be known for doing good. James goes on to say that a wise person is impartial. Impartial. Okay, that's why I get to do some of the digging in for us. I'm going to share you uh, what the digging in has has shown me. Okay, I, got, I want to share it with you because it's cool. Impartial. It, it could be translated and maybe better translated. Who am I to be better than, you know, the translation committees of Bibles? I don't mean that. But, hey, it could mean and very and does mean undivided. A wise person is undivided. It means there's not a part of you going this way and a part of you going that way. It could be translated unwavering like the New American Standard does. It could mean without uncertainty. It could mean not vacillating. It could mean unswayed. A wise person is unswayed. They're not divided, you know, here and there. Pull me this way, pull me that way. I go two ways. Uh, Unswayed. Wisdom from God is characterized by choosing a course and staying with it. If you have wisdom from God, you'll not be swayed by the things that shouldn't sway you. You're not swayed by the world or even by your flesh. A person who has wisdom from God has convictions that are fixed and immovable and are not going to be swayed by social pressure. 
See, that's what we need right now in our world is we need people who have fixed, immovable convictions that can't be swayed every way by our culture or by public pressure. And I'm thinking of three examples. They're all from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter one. Here's somebody who's unwavering. They are undividing. They will not sway. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A lot of you know the story. They're captives from Judah. They're taken to Babylon. And these four guys are going to be trained up to be in the king's court. They're going to serve the king. They're going to be close to the king. So they got to get prepped. They get ready to go to Babylonian University. And so first of all, they got to be fed and they got to become buff. So uh, the, the guy in charge of them says, here, here's your food. We want you to start eating this. And um, you want to you know, get you strong. And I'm, I'm sure that in the, the trip as prisoners of war going to Babylon, they, they had lost a lot of weight. So he said, here's their food. And Daniel and the three other guys are looking at it and said, we can't eat that. It's unclean. It's not kosher. And it's been offered to your idols. We can't do that. We can't do that. We can't be swayed from what we believe we have a conviction about. Let us instead have a vegetarian diet. And so the guy in charge of them was like, oh, okay, but you know, this ain't going to work. So at the specified time, he came later, he looked at the guys and they were completely buff, buffer than the guys who ate the high protein meals that had been offered to idols. You know what I'm saying? but they didn't sway from their conviction in just a little thing like what they ate in that case. What did that matter? Then in chapter three, you have Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and now they are high officials, and all the high officials and and representatives of the kingdom of Babylon are brought to this great wide plain. There's this huge idol of Nebuchadnezzar set up, And when the music plays, everybody's supposed to bow down and worship this image. And the music starts, everybody bows down except those three dudes. Who are they? Oh, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They serve the one true and living God. Don't they know what they're supposed to do? They go over, they warn them. They say, hey, if you don't bow down, you're going to be burned alive. Let's start this over. Music plays. Everybody bows. These three men are undivided, unswayed by the culture and the pressure around them. You know the story. You know the outcome. Then in Daniel chapter 6, we have Daniel, an amazing man. Daniel, now in his 90s, faces the greatest trial of his life. You know, don't think because you get older, things are going to get easier. (laughs) Not at all. So Daniel, his enemies had the king sign a law that you can only pray to the king for a certain amount of time. If you pray to anybody else, you'd be thrown into the den of lions and, you know, be eaten alive. Because they knew Daniel would be unswerving. He wouldn't move from his convictions. He wouldn't move away from what he knew was true. So when the law was passed... Daniel went, did away all he did, opened, always he opened his window, stretched out his hand, knelt, and prayed east towards where the temple had been. He always did it, and he wasn't going to stop now. You know, he was arrested, thrown into the den of lions. You know the rest of the story. God delivered him. Examples of people who had heaven's wisdom, God's wisdom, and they were not going to be swayed. Finally, God's wisdom at the end of verse 17, it says, is sincere. Sincere. And you could translate this without hypocrisy, if you want to write it down that way, without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy, and all of James' folks in his churches would know what it is. The word hypocrisy was the word they used for actors who played in the Greco-Roman plays. Now, this was clever in those days. They had three masks they would wear. One would be happy mask, sad mask, and an angry, evil mask. 
And so they would play the part. They would put on masks, play a part. Then they would take off a mask, put on another mask, play a part. No one knew who the real person was underneath that mask. See, that's what a hypocrite is. You put on a mask and nobody ever really knows who the real you is because you're always behind that mask. You're playing a part. It's sad when Christians play parts and they're not, you know, this is talking about real wisdom from God is sincere. You're not playing a part. You are who you are all the time. You are who you are all the time. Sum everything up. The Bible says that true wisdom is knowing what to do with what we have. It's not just head knowledge. It's please get all the head knowledge you can. But it's then working out. You say you have wisdom from God, James says, then show it by doing these wise things. I don't mean to be redundant, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is a wise person. I'm going to say this many ways right now. Wisdom is taking what you know and doing it. Amen? Wisdom is practicing what you know. Wisdom is applying what you know. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. Knowledge is truth, but wisdom is truth in action. By God's help, the help of the Spirit, it's our prayer that we would be wise people. Amen? Let's pray now. Lord, we are so grateful that we are able to come to you and ask for wisdom, as you say here in James. You said if we ask in faith without wavering, you would grant us that wisdom, and we are praying for it. We, we come to you with right hearts, maybe repentant of things that we should repent of, and come to you and asking for your help. Lord, now I ask that as this wisdom goes forth into the world, the world would look at your followers and see the difference that you make in our lives. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Praise the Lord for his word, you guys. Wisdom unimagined 
Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Divine Intervention. Amen! Amen! The sounds of Amen from thousands of people spread all over like the sound of trumpets announcing victory. The priest stood on the wooden platform and opened the word and praised God. All the people gathered at the square lifted their hands and responded with Amen and bowed down with their face on the ground. Thousands were gathered at the square in front of the water gate. Their faces had expressions of awe and their eyes twinkling in the clear morning sunshine seemed to prove that all of them were of one heart. The Israelites gathered at the square had hearts full of grace. Their hearts were full of God's word. Their appearance was godly and beautiful. The reason why that day's event was so moving might have been because the long-awaited spiritual restoration had come. I closed my eyes and imagined the Israelites gathered at the square in front of the water gate recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8. I felt like I was also standing among the crowd. Overcoming numerous difficulties and hardship, they rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem and gathered that day for a holy meeting. Just imagining how moved and touched they were that day overwhelmed my heart. They went through a difficult journey to reach this moment. There was one person who led the Israelites through this difficulty, and he was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a prominent spiritual leader who was a faithful, devoted servant of God. Not only did one awakened person's leadership rebuild Israel's destroyed wall, but it also rebuilt the people's spiritual wall. In this age, where it's hard to find a role model of leadership, I'm thankful to God who showed us Nehemiah from the Bible as a true Christian and an upright model of leadership. Nehemiah was not only a person who made precise and thorough plans, but also he was a person of fervent prayer. He knew how to work with many people. He respected his peers' talents and used those talents well. 
He was a wise person who didn't give any leeway to his enemy, and his life was upright. He had humility to accept criticism, but at the same time, he was also strict and firm towards evil acts. Among Nehemiah's prominent leadership skill that I was most fascinated by was his community responsibility. I strongly believe that Nehemiah's devotion to his homeland and fulfilling the vision to rebuild the wall was because of his community responsibility. Nehemiah was deeply grieved when he heard the news of his people groaning amid suffering and that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. He was in deep worry and sadness and fasted and prayed in tears for days. God, this servant is praying before you night and day for the children of Israel. The children of Israel have sinned before you. My household and I have sinned before you. We have not kept the commandments, laws, and rules that you have commanded to Moses. I confess and repent of my sins, so please listen to my prayer and have pity on me. Nehemiah was the descendant of a captive taken to Babylon. Now he was the trusted cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, ruler of the great Persian Empire. He was successful in that land and had a good job, so he was able to live a comfortable and relaxing life. I'm amazed that when he heard news about Jerusalem, his homeland, he was saddened and fasted and prayed for several days. While praying, he confessed and repented that Israel was in such a situation because of the sin of his household and his father's household. What was that about? The things happening in Israel had no direct relations with Nehemiah. In a worldly sense, Nehemiah was born and raised in Persia and became a government official in Persia. What relation would he have with the things happening in Israel? Shouldn't he wash his hands clean and say, I have nothing to do with their sins? However, Nehemiah confessed that the people's sin was his sin and his household's sin and repented before God in tears. Nehemiah equated the people's sin as his sin. Christian psychiatrist John White called this community responsibility. That's right. Nehemiah was aware that the sin of his people and his nation was his sin. I believe that Nehemiah's community responsibility is an important and necessity quality of a leader. Community responsibility isn't formed on its own. Only a person who prays can have this spiritual quality. It's an amazing sense given by God to a person who prays for one's homeland and God's kingdom. When you pray wholeheartedly before God, your neighbor's pain becomes your pain. Your neighbor's sin becomes your responsibility. And the world's depravity becomes your depravity and you repent. This is how community responsibility is formed. This isn't something a selfish human can do on one's own, but the work of the Holy Spirit within us. This happens when God's heart becomes my heart through prayer. Nehemiah's tears were not sentimental tears. His tears included responsibility. If you prayed for an impoverished neighbor, then it becomes a genuine prayer when you actually help the impoverished neighbor. In the same way, after Nehemiah fasted and prayed in tears, he devoted his life for his homeland. Anyone could shed sympathetic tears. It is possible to have a momentary heartache. However, not anyone can take responsibility for the tears. Therefore, I believe that Nehemiah is an excellent leader. These days, many leaders are not trying to take on their responsibilities. They criticize each other and pass on their responsibilities and are in a hurry to make excuses for their situations. As I look at them, I think what foolish people they are. They desire impressive positions and momentarily enjoy popularity solely by being a good speaker. However, at the moment when sacrifice and dedication is needed, they only look out for their interests and their awful true self is revealed. It's unfortunate to look at these leaders 
as I ask, how can we entrust this society, nation, and church to them? Surprisingly, these days, the things worldly people frown upon are often happening in the church. There are many churches in the world, but it is rare to find the church I want to recommend to a non-believer. Are we different as individuals? We see our neighbor's pain, but don't empathize with them and look the other way. Forget about community responsibility. The disease of modern people is that they refuse to accept their own individual responsibility. In this completely selfish modern society, I believe Nehemiah is the sincere spiritual mentor we are longing and looking for. If our descendants of the American-born second and third generation could look at our distant homeland and be heartbroken and pray in tears like Nehemiah, then one day, sons and daughters like Nehemiah will arise and together rebuild if our descendants of the American-born second and third generation could look at our distant homeland and be heartbroken and pray in tears like Nehemiah, then one day, sons and daughters like Nehemiah will arise and together rebuild the crumbling spiritual wall of our homeland. I wait in anticipation for that day of awe from Nehemiah chapter 8 to come to us. I desperately pray that revival in the square in front of the water gate will happen to us. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will hear their land. Lord, please let this day come soon. Please heal this diseased land, and within a few years, may your work be revived. Amen. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.